many of you will have seen uh, just last week, Eliud Kipchoge. You seen this man? Look familiar to any of you? Kipchoge is a Kenyan runner. And I feel, I feel it's safe to say that Kipchoge is a beast. He is an absolute animal of a runner. Nobody, nobody before Kipchoge had ever dreamed of running a marathon more quickly than two hours. The previous record was over two hours. It was, I think the record he himself set was two hours and one minute. And it was a bit like the four-minute mile. Nobody thought it was physiologically possible, but Kipchoge got in his heart and he got in his head that it was possible somehow to break the two-hour barrier. For those of you who've never considered a marathon, never even considered the duration, it is over 26 of your miles. 26 of them. If you're going to translate that into kilometers, I believe we're talking 42.2. We've got some marathon runners in the room. It's a lot of kilometers. It's a lot of miles. It's the kind of amount of miles that should not be even dreamed about doing in two hours. I think if you're doing a marathon and you break four hours, it's considered that you've, you've done a solid job. If you break three, you are a savage. If you break two, then you are in Sane, but Kipchoge got a vision. He had this vision. He had a vision to break two hours. And he began to, to plan and to prepare and to set his heart toward this vision. And he began to, to talk about the vision. And, and he had a go at it. With, uh, he did it in sort of in private. And he, he, uh, the conditions were all right. And he didn't make it. He, just, he ran just over two hours. But then he went back to the drawing board and said, look, I believe this is possible. I got close enough to hope and to believe that it's still possible to do this. And so he gathered a whole host of things to enable this. And first of all, he began with sponsorship. He knew he needed sponsorship because this is going to be a costly exercise. And so he got a guy called Jim Ratcliffe who leads a business called Ineos. And he's the, he's the most wealthy British person. So, you know, start, start the top. You want to do something, just gather the most wealth that you possibly can. So Jim Ratcliffe came on, on side. He was on team. Now, then they had to find out which was the ideal course to do this. You can't just do it anywhere. There's no point trying to do it through the park in Nottingham where it's hilly. You need to do it somewhere flat where the wind is going to be low. They did it just last week. So it was somewhere where it was, it was, it was going to be cool enough but not windy. There wasn't going to be too much of an incline. And they sent teams out all over the place, all over the world. To look, they didn't want it to be too far from uh, Kipch- the time zone in which Kipchoge lived. And so they settled on uh, Prater Park in Vienna. They even resurfaced some of the roads to enable it to be possible. He went through a rigorous training schedule. He won the London Marathon. He's won it the last two years. And uh, he, took it, he gave himself a break of a few weeks after winning the marathon. And then he began his training. He would run three to four times a week. And then, on the other days, he'd hit the gym. And that laid the foundation for the four-month marathon build-up, which, <laughs> which involved an activity on Tuesdays called fartlek. Isn't that great? Fartlek is Swedish for speed play. Fartlek's not exactly how it sounds, folks. And on, on Thursdays, he'd go on a long run. How long is a long run when you're Kipchoge? It's a long, it's long. Then he'd do a hard session of intervals on Saturday, and then the rest of the week he'd just do easy to steady, steady runs. Easy. Smashed it. He gathered 41 pacemakers. Now these 41, pa- 41, 
pacemakers. They ran ahead of him in a V formation, which is aerodynamically tested to be ideal for a record-breaking run. These 41 pacemakers were world beaters. These were the best runners available. You can see the ones who finished with him just behind him there. There was a car ahead of him, and the car projected lasers onto the road to tell Kipchoge what pace he needed to keep up to. There was a crowd. Previous attempt, which he just failed in, he did alone. But he knew he needed people to support him, to cheer him on. So he had a, a huge crowd. And uh, he had drinks, which were carbohydrate-based drinks made by a Swedish company. Every time he took a drink, the team picked the drink up uh, that he discarded. They weighed it to find out how much he'd drunk so they could prepare the next drink with just the right amount. And, and he had shoes. Look at the shoes. Those shoes are designed by uh, an American company, which I'm not going to name, uh, but you know who they are. And uh, those shoes have got, I think it's three carbon plates in them. Those shoes are designed, and apparently they release, they enable a 4% increase or improvement in oxygen intake. Which is why all, it's why actually athletes who aren't sponsored by this company are writing to the IAAF to complain. Because it's an, uh, they say it gives an unfair advantage. Kipchoge said, look at him, he's finishing the race. He doesn't even look tired. <laughs> who are you, man? <laughs> he said this, see this on the screen. Many ideologies have been going or have been suggested that no human being will break the two-hour mark. But personally... Listen to this. I have dared to try. Wow. Can you feel that? I have dared to try. Our vision here is to see the church on fire and the city alive. And I'm telling you today that we didn't come up with that because it, it kind of scanned well. Because it was a, a two-liner that would fit uh, on the front of our website. We came up with it because we felt the Spirit of God was calling us, calling a people who would dare to try to build a sense of hunger for His presence, that, that a people who would be so hungry for Him that we might just call down the very uh, fire of heaven. And what I think God is looking for is a people who would dare to try, to dare to try to build a sense of his manifest presence in a place and among a people. Too rarely do we consider what it might take, what it might cost. And I received a card this week from one of you. I thank you. An encouragement. It was a card of encouragement. And then there was this quote in it, which I got to say was less encouraging and more challenging. This is what the card said, quoting from Evelyn Underhill. The real life of the spirit has little to do with emotional enjoyments, even of the loftiest kind. Indeed, it offers few attractions to the natural man, nor does it set out to satisfy his personal desires. The career to which it calls him is one that he would seldom have chosen for himself. It proceeds by way of much discipline and renunciation, often of many sufferings, to a total abandonment to God's purpose, which leaves no room even for the most subtle expression of self-love. 
What if God is trying to build Kipchoge's and we are training for the park run? What if God is trying to build marathon runners and we are trotting out on a Saturday morning for a leisurely walk? What if God wants to build in us a hunger, a posture that none of us have even dared to imagine would be possible for us because we've never seen it? What if he wants to completely redefine in our generation what the church even is? What about what if he's what he's trying to do is to is to take scales from our eyes to redefine our imagination to put us into the kind of training that that's going to release possibilities for us and for our city that we just don't even dare dream of at this point of being possible. What if he really does want to release all of those slaves? What would it take? What would it require? What would it demand of us? What would it demand of us to become a people who carried his presence with us wherever we went, who didn't allow the, the communion between us and heaven to be, to be quashed or even to be inhibited by momentary afflictions and anxiety. We fundamentally held every possession, every gift, even, even our own families and our children so lightly before him. We've said last week, we said that what that's going to require is for us to focus on a set of postures with which we walk through our lives. And last week we spoke about the posture of generosity. In the next few weeks we're going to speak about postures of delighting, about postures of forgiving and others. And today I want to speak about a posture of seeking. And when we're looking at the posture of seeking, we are absolutely looking at the person of King David. Now, some of you know King David, but if you're new to the church, let me give you a little biographical insight, a bit like Eliud Kipchoge. David spent a lot of time alone uh, running or walking or taking care of uh, sheep in private places as a kid. Against all odds, uh, from a solitary sort of childhood, David was called to be and anointed to be God's king, to the second king, actually, of Israel. God had already rejected Israel's first king, a man called Saul, because he wouldn't wait for God. He wouldn't posture his life around God. He wanted to rush on ahead of God. He wanted to do things his way. And so God rejected him and poured his favor on this man, David. And he began to prepare David in the secret, secret place. And he began to prepare in David a hunger for him that nobody had seen in Israel before. Certainly not since Moses. Had anybody seen somebody who was so centered around God and his presence as David was? And the way that the scriptures uh, speak about this is they say that David had a heart after God's own heart. And what that means is simply that David's heart followed God's heart. 
He was pursuing God. He was seeking God. David stood out even as a child in just this way. David wrote the Psalms, or many of them, and there's one Psalm particularly which has been an encouragement to me over many years. It's Psalm 27, and in verse 4 it says this, One thing I have asked, this alone do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold him in his temple, to inquire in his temple, to behold his beauty. Speaks about hunger that David had, even, even as a young man, for God's presence above all else. And in the midst of that hunger, David became a success, perhaps because of that hunger. God's favor was attracted to him. And it wasn't just about churchy favor. It was something that flowed in his life in every area of his life. His first public act was to defeat Goliath, which if you're going to begin a career, let me just say, don't begin there. Leave yourself some headroom. Don't begin on a high like that because it's going to be difficult to sustain that level of hype. But he kills Goliath. And then he's drawn into the army as a military commander. He's placed over a thousand men, even as a young man. And he has great success. Whenever they go out to, a military, to, to war, they win. Defeats the Philistines and Saul begins to be very, very grateful. But as often happens when God's favor is attracted to people, that success causes with it opposition. Some of you know this. You know God has called you to something. You know there's favor. And yet what you experience is opposition. And that is the shadow side of the favor that God's given you. Favor and opposition never exist independently of one another. And so David's favor, like Joseph's before him, is experienced by him in, in opposition. He's opposed by those who he's called to serve. He's opposed by Saul. Saul tries to kill him. David has to flee. And on a series of uh, he has a series of opportunities to kill Saul, memorably once while Saul is on uh, in the bathroom, as it were. And David doesn't. He cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, a robe just to say, I could have done it, but I didn't. <laughs> we get a picture of David who, he's not going to take anything into his own hands. He's going to follow at God's timing in God's way. Far be it from me, he says, ever to lift up my hand against God's anointed. Now Saul, David's great enemy, finally dies. And rather than celebrating, David leads the people in weeping. He's magnanimous even in victory. And he's enthroned as king of Judah and later king of all Israel. And if this wasn't enough, this almost immeasurable success wasn't enough, David takes Jerusalem. This seemingly before this impenetrable city, nobody ever imagined it was possible to run under two hours. Nobody ever imagined it was possible to take Jerusalem. And David does. This walled city, he takes it for God's people. And on the rock he has a dream on the rock to establish the temple where God would be praised. And, and basically God says, look, David, I've got to leave something for your son. It's hard to follow someone like you, David. I'm going to leave something for Solomon. Let's let him do the temple thing. The rest of it's yours, my friend. You see, David's driven. What is he driven by? It isn't success. David is driven by the fact that as a child, as a boy, he was ruined for anything but the presence of God. 
And so he could have all this success. He could have almost unlimited power in the kingdom of Israel. He could have the quashing and the quelling of every enemy around, and it would never, ever be enough. None of it would be enough because David, like Kipchoge, was driven by a dream. He was driven by a goal, and the goal was to see the presence of God established among the people of God, to see the presence of God in his own life working powerfully. Have you met somebody who's driven, really driven? For whatever goal, have you met somebody like that who's... You know, you, you sort of speak to them, you interact with them. Some of you are married, perhaps, or friends with somebody like this. And it doesn't matter what opposition's in their way. They just, they just keep going. It's like sometimes you're talking to them and they're a bit distant. Their eyes are just like focused on some particular goal. You met somebody like this? David was that kind of person. Somebody who's a bit wild, can't be tamed, Somebody's maybe at times a little bit over-emotional. D- dare I say it? Somebody's a little bit intense. Do you know somebody a little bit intense? Frightening at times. You're thinking, yeah, it's good, but calm down a little, would you? David was this kind of person. David was never going to be satisfied with what he had. Why? Because as a child, David understood that nothing on earth other than God and his presence was ever going to satisfy him. David says in Psalm 63, verse 3, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I'll praise you as long as I live. In your name, I'll lift up my hands. I will be satisfied as with the richest foods. My singing lips with, uh, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Psalm 65 is the same theme. That David knows his satisfaction is only going to come in God. He'd been ruined for anything but God. I have sensed in my life a hunger for God that, if I'm honest, it has come and it has gone. It has ebbed and it has flowed. But the, the most significant unanswered prayer, in fact, I, in fact, I believe the only unanswered prayer in my life, is that I might have an encounter with God that would take away all doubt of his presence that would so empower me to do the things that I feel called and hungry to do. And you know what? God has never answered that prayer. He has never given me that shabba moment that some other people have had. That moment whereby I could put it in chapter one of the book. <laughs> that would release me in great power into all that I believe God, ne- that God has given or wants for me. I've never had it. Praise God. But you know what? I I think the reason he's never given me that is because he wants me to develop a hunger for him that will never be repressed. That could never be overwhelmed, never be overtaken. And he wants that for you too. He wants you to pursue him above all else, above all other ends, above everything else. In my life, positively, that has been given me and granted a sense of that always being more. That's been the positive. The negative has been a sense of dissatisfaction with everything else. I'm learning to manage that. And I look at us and where we're at as a church and and on the face of it, we've had success, haven't we? Look at this incredible room we're in. 
And my best friend, uh, Steve, uh, I say other than Amy, my best friend, Steve, <laughs> is here today. Uh, it's, it's an amazing honor to have a friend like Steve. It's an amazing gift to have him here. It's an amazing gift for him to see this and uh, three years to arrive here and see. Uh, and uh, it's impressive. It's amazing what's happened here. And I'm proud to show it. I'm proud of what we've done. I'm proud of what we've... I'm proud of you. I'm proud of this congregation. I'm proud of what God's... I'm so proud. I'm proud of you. I'm so proud of our kids. I'm so proud. I'm so proud of what God's doing. But it's not enough, is it? It's not enough. We've got hundreds of people that come here now. Are we successful? It's not the point, is it? This isn't the point. It's not about numbers. It's not about gathering people. It's about seeing people set on fire for God. It's about seeing the presence of God restored to the heart of the church. It's about seeing the presence of God restored to the heart of God's people. And David has that in his heart. And there's a moment in in the history of Israel, where David has an idea, he's reclining on his chair. Uh, uh, this, this bit's not in the Bible. He's reclining on his chair and he's thinking, oh, what am I going to do next? And the idea comes into his mind. Oh, the pang of hunger in his heart, the desire which is beneath and below and before every other desire in his heart. I must have God's presence in the city. We must have the Ark of the Covenant back in Jerusalem. The Ark, a wooden box which had in it the tablets of stone on which were the Ten Commandments, together with Aaron's staff that had budded, which represented the miraculous provision of God. The Ark which symbolized and in fact held the very presence of God for the people of God. We must have the Ark, says David, back in the city, and the ark had been captured. And in that moment, 1 Samuel 4, 21, it was said when the ark was captured that the glory of God had departed from Israel. And the ark symbolized the glory of God, and the glory, the, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod. It meant weight or glory, symbolized by weight. We speak about people who throw their weight around. And when the, when the ark of God left the people of God, it was like things had got lighter. It was like it was measurable. People felt it was different. And so wherever the ark of God, in fact, initially in the Philistine territory, wherever the ark of God was, there was judgment. There was cancer. And then when the ark was, uh, eventually the Philistines sent the ark back, they said, we don't want it. We don't like it. We don't like God's presence. It's you know, because we're not living in submission to him. God's presence for us is experienced as wrath. It's experienced to us as judgment because we're not following. But for Israel, for those who commit themselves to living in covenant relationship with God, it was experienced as blessing. You have that in your life? You've ever had that where you're opposing God's presence? And so whenever he shows up, it feels bad. It's uncomfortable. I've had times I've walked into churches, I'm not walking with God, and it's like, ah, I don't want to be here. But for Israel, it was the reverse. It was blessing, favor released whenever the presence was there, whenever the ark was there. So David says, look, why should they in Obed-Edom, why should they in Obed-Edom 
have the benefit. Why can't we have the benefit of God's presence in Jerusalem? And so he sends to get it, and they begin. They set off in 2 Samuel 6, they set off to get the presence of God back, the weight of God, the glory of God, the Ark of the Covenant. 30,000 men go with David. That's a decent crowd. Kipchoge could run, I think, an hour and a half with a crowd like that. And they make a real song and a dance out of it. But you know, they set off, David sets off, but he fails to prepare in the prescribed way. It says in 1 Chronicles 15, it was, uh, after they failed, it says this, it was because you, the Levites, did not bring up the first time, the ark the first time that the Lord broke out in anger against us. In other words, they failed to prepare correctly. They don't take the ark. The Levites don't take the ark. And they don't take it on poles as they were supposed to do. David just gets some of his mates to do it. They think, David thinks this is a military exercise like every other one he's had success in. He doesn't realize that he's dealing with something completely and utterly different. That this is the presence of God. This isn't just a run in a park. This isn't just a Saturday stroll. This isn't just the Philistines. This is God. This is the presence of God. And so they fail. When David and his team get to the threshing floor, this thing starts wobbling in Uzzah or Uzzah. Who knows? I don't know on that one. Just choose your own adventure on Uzzah. Uzzah. He reaches out, and you know, some of us find it really difficult this moment in Scripture. I have to say, I have no problem whatsoever with what happens next. It's like, it's like Utsa just fails to understand the magnitude of what he's dealing with. He thinks this box is just another box. It's an empty box. It's just a symbol. Just a sign. Just a memorial. There's nothing actually in it. We do with whatever we want with the presence of God, and so he reaches out to steady it. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a consuming fire. Uzzah, the first secularist, is just a sign and a symbol. It's, can you believe they used to believe in this stuff? Uzzah fails, but really the failure is David's. He's failed to lead the people well. He's failed to position them toward the presence of God. He thought it would be easy. Perhaps he'd become intoxicated by his own success. Every other return to the city for David had been glorious. Maybe he thought this 20-mile journey, less than a marathon, would be just like the military victories. It turned out the 20-mile journey to bring the presence of God back to the city would be the hardest of David's life. You know, it is not easy to build a life around the presence of God. It will not happen by accident. You cannot show up in Prater Park in Vienna and knock a two-hour marathon out. 13 miles per hour, that is. Now, the fit ones among us could probably sustain 13 miles an hour for two minutes. Try 120. It is... It's not, is that right, 120? That's right, it's two hours, isn't it? It's a moment of self-doubt. 
Building a life around the presence of God won't happen without great sacrifice and significant care. It will be costly. What will it cost? It will cost everything. Everything. relatively easy to build a life with a a smorgasbord, if you like, a whole selection of things. And God gives us so many gifts, doesn't he? He gives us the gift of career, many of us. Some some of us, we have the gift of family. Some of us, hopefully all of us, we have the gift of friendship. And if you don't, this is a place you can find that gift. Hopefully we have the gift of health. Different times we struggle, but we have gifts from God. But they're gifts, they're not entitlements. Easy to end up building a life around the gifts and to miss the giver, but to build a life around the giver, it takes effort. What would it look like to build a life, a church, around the presence of God? It's not easy, you know. Because the problem for us, and I recognize this as one of your leaders, the problem for us is just defaulting to what we've seen. Getting to that point of saying, we've got a few hundred people. I think, I, think we, I think we can pat ourselves on the back. We've got heating now. <laughs> Praise the living God. We have heating. Can I get an amen? amen. Oh, for those of you who have been here since the beginning, we don't take the heating lightly. Oh, it's nice to be here without a hot water bottle. It really is. We have an alpha course. We have a website. We've just redone it, by the way. We have, a, we have a logo. Whisper it, we have a logo. Yeah, it's impressive. We're on, we're on the Instagram and the Facebook. <laughs> Are we carrying the presence of God? Because that's the point. R.T. Kendall says this, we may be highly successful in all else we do. Organizing missions and conferences, even the orchard, pick up your tickets, preparing good sermons or even average ones, writing books, writing hymns, getting big crowds and obtaining a bit of a profile. But to see the glory return to the church is not so easy. David thought it would be a walkover, a piece of cake. Wrong. The greatest achievement that the modern church could possibly witness would be the restoration of God's glory. There is no greater goal and aim than which no greater can be conceived. That's what we're here for. What would it look like? What would it cost to see the presence of God reestablished in the city? Our vision is to see not only the glory of God inflaming a people, but actually reviving a city. What is that going to take? It's going to take everything you have and everything God has. Despite David's failure, his hunger resurfaces. He sets out again, but this time... With God's instruction in mind, with no shortcuts before him. Sacrificing animals every six steps, nothing put to chance. 
David sacrifices the greatest enemy any of us has today, which is apathy. And the greatest enemy, I, I haven't written this down, but I want to say this to you now. The greatest enemy that you or I will face in living a life like David's, in living a life like Jesus, will be the enemy of comfort. Because it's so comfortable. Isn't it? Like I said, we've got a temperature now which is comfortable. And our culture is designed to create comfort. And our churches are designed for comfort too. We are designed as pastors to lead you into comfort. Do you know why? Because if you're comfortable, you'll stay. And if you stay, then we get to say to our friends that we've built a church of a certain size. And that makes us feel good. And what I want to do today is make you feel uncomfortable. I want to make you feel uncomfortable. I want to make you feel uncomfortable for anything other than him. Not me, but him. So what? Well, here's how the story ends. David dancing around in his underpants. Can you see it? <laughs> it's not going to happen, folks. It's not going to happen. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Oh, dear. But what about undignified worship? That might happen. What about a group of people who are so passionate about him that even when the whole, even when our own friends, when our own family like Michel says, look, how is the king doing this? <laughs> how could he do this? Abasing himself before the people. David says, I don't care what you say. I will become even more undignified than this. I'll be abased in my own eyes. I'm so fixated on God. I'm so, I'm so determined to bring him honor that I don't care even about how you see me. It ends in celebration. It ends with a return of the presence to the people. What will it look like for you? That's my question for you today. I can't answer it for anyone else. We each have to answer it for ourselves. In Isaiah 55, which is one of the scriptures God has given to our church, it says this. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. It's just last night, or just this morning, I think it was. Was it love, Joe? Have you got that on your phone? Would you mind just passing that to me? A member of our team, Joe, Joe Lees Robinson, got a son called Joshua, a husband called John. I'm just filling while Amy passed me the phone. <laughs> Thank you. Said this, I have a picture of an old style alarm clock, the ones that you can't snooze. And someone jumping out of bed and throwing off a blanket. I think God's asking the question, will you be ready when the alarm clock goes off? It doesn't feel heavy, but exciting. Not sure if it's for sharing or not. Apparently it is. But felt it was for Trinity. Followers for Trinity. The alarm's about to go off. We're about to be awoken from our slumber. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. He's ready to be found. The space between heaven and earth is growing thin, increasingly thin. These political events that surround us are all about that. I'm saying to you this morning, start seeking. Develop the posture of seeking. Seek him in scripture. Seek him in prayer. Seek him in community. Seek above all else, whatever you can, his presence. Go into training. Go into training for the kind of thing that you've never even imagined will be possible. Ask God to give you a new vision for your life. Ask God to give you a new vision for what's possible for your life, for the church, and for our city. Why don't we do that now? as we stand. Father God, we pray simply that you would have your way. We say that we do not understand you as we need to. We say that all of our best attempts to seek you, they they flounder because of our, at times, our apathy, our comfort. And we're asking you in, in your grace and by your mercy, because we're always drawn by your mercy. Would you unsettle us? Would you discomfort us? Would you provoke us? Would you create in us a posture of hunger, a posture of seeking, a posture of readiness, of humility, of uh, devotion? I ask even this morning, Lord, for the gift of desperation. I ask for the gift of desperation. And I pray for the anointing of dissatisfaction. With dissatisfaction for everything which is not you. And I pray, Lord, you would begin it in me.